0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to LSE for tonight's Middle East Careers event, hosted by the LSE Middle East Centre and by the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, BRISMIS. My name is Robert Lowe, and I am the Deputy Director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. I'm also the Executive Director of BRISMIS, so I welcome you on behalf of both organisations here tonight. Um, We're very grateful to our four speakers, our four panellists who have kindly agreed to come out this evening to join the event, and we're lucky to have representatives from a variety of sectors to talk about their career experience um, and offer any advice that might be useful to you uh, tonight. Um, I won't introduce them in detail because that's what they're about to do to you themselves. Um, but on my far left, uh, we have Austin Josephs, who's an Associate Director at ALACO Limited. Next to me is Sylvia uh, Quatrini, who is MENA Programs Coordinator at Minority Rights Group International. On my right is my colleague Jessica Watkins, who is a researcher at the LSE Middle East Centre. And on the far-, far right, we have Alexandra Buccianti, who is Project Manager, Middle East North Africa at BBC Media Action. So thank you all and welcome. Um, the speakers will each talk for just a short period, up to about five minutes. Um, so we will leave as much time as possible following that for you to ask questions um, of the panel. Um, Please put your phones on silence, and I also need to let you know that this lecture is being recorded, um, and it will be podcast afterwards. The hashtag for the event is LSEbrismas, um, and we also have uh, an Instagram, what do you call it, Sandra, Instagram frame over there, which we warmly encourage you to have yourself photographed in uh, at the end of the event, and help spread your, your profile through the Brisbane and ABC Instagram account. There she is, she likes that. Um, What else do I need to say? Ah, I need to make some announcements on behalf of Brismas. Now, I appreciate that not many of you will be Brismas members. A few of you are, which is great. Um, But I need to tell you a little bit more about Brismas, what the Society does and what it has coming up. Uh, Brismas is the UK's premier association for Middle East Studies. I think it may also be the UK's only association for Middle East Studies, but that's still a good reason to join and get involved. And to give you a flavour of some of the things Brismas does in addition to careers events, we have our annual lecture coming up on the 2nd of March. Uh, That is also in this very theatre, and it will be given by Professor Olivier Roy from the European University Institute in Florence, and he will be speaking on religious radicalisation. The lecture is free and open to all. Uh, We're currently registering, so please look that one up and come along if you'd like. Then Brismas' main annual event is its annual conference which will be this summer, uh, 25 to 28 June, at uh, our friends across the road at King's College London. They'll be hosting the annual conference this year. The subject is New Approaches to Studying the Middle East. It's going to be our largest conference ever. Um, We've accepted uh, well over 400, nearly 500 papers. Uh, There'll be over 100 panels over three and a half days. Uh, So it's, It's going to be a cracking event, so do look that up and come along, please. Um, It's very reasonably priced, especially if you're a student. Um, We offer a substantial discount on the cost of the the event to help students attend. So please look that one up. Moving on from that, if you're really keen, do consider getting involved in the student section of Brismas. Um, Brismas student section is undergoing something of a revival at the moment. We're trying to re-energise it. The student section president, Annie Webster, who is at SOAS, is here tonight, and Annie is currently seeking help. We're looking for other students to help join the committee of that section and also for representatives at local universities around the UK. So if you'd like to get involved, that would be wonderful. Annie, do you want to show yourself? I don't know where you are. There she is. Annie's up there, top right. Not to, not to embarrass you, but have a word with Annie at the reception. And I should also point out in the front here, we have Louise Hasey, who's a business administrator, and Sinead Murphy, who's running the Brisbane's annual conference. So speak to either of my colleagues about anything to do with Brisbane's. Also, um, related to jobs, Brismas has a wonderful jobs page, which offers uh, vacancies in a wide variety of sectors relating to the Middle East. Look on the Brismas website for that. And we send out a newsletter to members, which also includes uh, job vacancy listings. So all that leads me to encourage you to join the society. It's only £30 for student members. It's incredibly good value for what you get. Um, The last announcement I want to make is that the LSE Middle East Centre currently has two jobs um, advertised. We have two hires we've just released. If you're interested in working on research projects or in running events, please have a look. Um, Both hires are live. The deadline for each is within a few weeks' time. Um, but those vacancies are available, so it seemed a good time to to uh, tout those. right. I've said enough. I think we'll kick off now by moving into our speakers. We will start with Alexandra. Thank you.
1: Hello, thanks. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. There's, ob- there's a special place in my heart for the Middle East Center because I actually met my partner in this room at a Middle East Center event. (laughs) So, If if your Arab mother is trying to find you a husband or a wife, tell her she's looking in the wrong place. (laughs) Anyways, I'm not here to talk to you about mama. Um, You're probably finishing your dissertations and you're thinking, what am I gonna do with a master's in political science or Middle East studies? Um, And that was me in 2010. Um, so I had just finished a 150-page dissertation at Sciences Po about Egyptian talk shows, um, and I was thinking, well, thankfully I finished it then because I would still be writing it now, I guess, given the next events. Um, so um, to me, I was very lucky because I never asked myself whether I wanted to work in or on the Middle East. It was a very clear thing that this is what I wanted to do, but the question was in which capacity. And from the internships that I did as a student, I knew definitely what I didn't want to do on the Middle East. I didn't want to become a French diplomat. I didn't want to work in a think tank on the long term. Um, so what I did was I took a break. I went home to Egypt and um, take this break, because it might be the only one that you take. <laughs> um, I went to Egypt um, and took the break. And I found my job at 2 AM, my first job, at 2 AM on Web. I don't think the career advice uh, office would advise you to do that, but this is what happened. And it was—I um, was an international observer on the South Sudan referendum um, in Sudan. So I, f- I went to Sudan for a year, and obviously, being an Arabic speaker really contributed to me getting this job. Um, so it was—it was a fascinating job because it combined all the things that I liked. Um, it was political analysis. It was meeting fascinating people, interviewing people. But also, you know, a, a fascinating new country. Um, but then the revolution happened in Egypt, and obviously my heart was in Tahrir, and so I decided to go back. Um, and this is how I found my second, uh, my current job, which is uh, also at two a.m. on ReliefWeb. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, I now work for BBC Media Action. It's a job that combines, you know, my passion for media, but also my passion for development and my desire to work in an NGO. I'm still there. Um, so BBC Media Action is the international development charity of the BBC. Um, so we're not funded by the license fees, because that question comes up a lot. <laughs> but we are funded by donors, such as you know, uh, DFID, the Foreign Office, the EU, or Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and so it revolves, mostly it revolves around media development, or communication for development, which is using um, media for development goals. Um, my j- I work for the Middle East team, and most of the work we do revolves around governance, so that's a broad range of things from journalism training, accountability programming, um, you know, content around youth engagement, um, working you know, with uh, Arab media practitioners, um, whether on producing debate shows or producing um, drama uh, content, so supporting script writing and capacity building um, to make drama. Whether it's TV or web, another big part of um, the work that we do at the moment um, is, unfortunately, given the situation in the region, um, is humanitarian response. Um, so it's about how um, media um, and um, aid agencies and NGOs can work together to provide life-saving information to people in a crisis. Um, so you may have seen um, you may have seen a vertical video that we made two years ago. Um, called Your Phone is a Refugee's Phone, um, which very much was about this idea, and it you know, was promoting a research report um, explaining how communication can help in a crisis. Um, so in practice, that one of the things that we do, for example, is we've produced information videos for refugees that were broadcast in, refu- in registration centres um, in Lebanon, UNHCR ref- uh, registration centres, or um, a radio information, uh, humanitarian information program that was broadcast um, for Gaza in 2014. So it's, it's a broad range of things. Um, so in practice, what do I do on a daily basis? So I started at the bottom of the food chain as a project assistant, um, and I'm now a project manager, and on a day-to-day basis, that means I design projects, I get them funded, um, and I need to I think a big part is ensuring that they fit the local context that we operate in, and that's really important um, for this region. Um, so then I work on the delivery of projects, reporting on the projects, but also a big part is about impact and understanding <coughs> you know, the achievements of <coughs> the projects and how it can inform um, what lessons you've learned, but also how it can inform the sort of broader policy framework. Um, so it's, it really varies, and amongst the things that I got to do also was to work on a policy brief on Arab media after the uprisings, um, so yes, I've been flirting a bit with academia. Um, I'm inter- very much interested in Arab media research. Um, I never could commit to a PhD, but um, it's kind of my night job, the <laughs> Arab media publications. So I think maybe in another life I'd be you know, writing a PhD. I, I don't know. On Fifi Abdul's online account, and yeah. digital persona, <laughs> the Egyptians would know what I'm talking about. So briefly, in terms of tips, um, I think, as I said, internships, it's a really good thing to know what you want to do or don't want to do. And I think for me, that really um, directed me towards media um, and, and development. The second thing is obviously knowing the context. It's super important. And I think it can't, I can't emphasize this enough. It's, not, it's really not like operating anywhere. Uh, Arabic, uh, really important. Um, not uh, put in enough in emphasis, I guess. But I think if you want to ask me what, the level d- what level you should have, I'd say maybe to be able to write an email, but most importantly, to be able to sustain a conversation in a dialect. That's really important. And I think um, living in the Middle East is really important. Mixing up, not only hanging out with the expats. Um, You know, lots of events here in London as well, vibrant Arab community. Um, And then I think the last thing is really knowing your audience. Um, I think we, you know, there are a lot of people who send out applications without reading the websites of the organizations Uh (laughs) they are applying for without reading the job descriptions. (coughs) It's really important to know your audience, and that's one of the key BBC principles. Um, But I I think, you know, there's, there's, it's really important to imp- explain how you and your story and your experience relates to the job um, that you're applying for. And sometimes people will just send you very generic things. And I think the more personal um, and genuine you are, um, the better. And I guess another thing is don't, uh, I mean, d- we, we could disagree on this, but to me, I never asked for a job. And I, th- I feel like it's, it's very much about how you network and who you meet, um, and being able to not do it you know in a very direct um, give me a job way, but then it works for other people, so I guess um, happy to take questions um, now or later. feel free. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very helpful indeed. I'm just going to um, re-emphasise that point that you made there practically about reading the website. We, We do quite a lot of recruitment here. We receive a lot of wonderful applications from very talented people, but it's astonishing how few go on our website and connect their application to the work we're doing. It's very simple. It's incredibly effective if you do pick out a few things that your prospective employer is running and show serious personal interest in some of that activity. So many applications are strong but generic. And the generic ones don't don't move forward at all. So that's a very very useful, practical, and powerful point. Thank you, Jessica.
2: Hi. So thank you very much again for inviting me to talk about myself, which (laughs) I probably do enough of anyway. But I brought some notes as a reminder in case I forget what I've done in my life. But um, so I am, as Bob said, I work at the Middle East Centre, and I'm a a research officer. which is essentially a postdoc position, um, and I've been there for six months. Um, I was hired to work on uh, a project funded by the Department for International Development. Uh, It's a three-year project looking at uh, drivers of conflict in in the Middle East, which is a mammoth project. Um, uh, So I I wanted to say a bit about how I got to where I am now. I've had a few jobs in both policy and academia, so I've kind of seen it from both sides. And it's been a bit of a windy road, but um, I started out uh, doing a, a undergrad BA in um, Middle Eastern Studies, or it's it's actually Oriental Studies when I did it at uh, Cambridge University. Um, the main component was Arabic language, and uh, I won't lie, I found it incredibly difficult. So, if I know there are a lot of native speakers here, but um, if you're not a native speaker and you're struggling with Arabic, then it is. It's really hard. And uh, the first couple of years are the hardest, um, especially when you go out to the region and you and you find that the, the Fusha or the, the standard Arabic you've learned doesn't correspond to the dialects that people speak. <laughs> but um, it's worth it. Stick with it. And, um, and you kind of reach a point where you, you suddenly realize that you can actually talk. And that's an amazing feeling. <laughs> um, So I I felt like when I got to the end of my degree that I really owed it to myself to use the the language component of of what I'd done. And actually, I didn't do politics first up. So um, it was a kind of a natural choice to go into translation. So I had um, a translation job for the civil service. um, And one of my first jobs was as a translator and interpreter for um, the British Army in in southern Iraq. Um, I was, I guess, quite naive about politics at, at that stage and the whole, this whole idea of, of state-building. And, and there I was in the middle of it. Um, it was really an eye-opener. And I ended up um, being not, not only doing translating but being, being a note-taker for the commanding officer there, which doesn't sound very illustrious, but it was, quite, uh, it was kind of a fly-on-the-wall position where I, I got to um, meet a lot of the, the leading Iraqi politicians in southern Iraq and the heads of the security sector and it really informed what uh, what I wanted to do next, um, and I did want to get into policy after that. So, um, I uh, after a couple of years, I found a job at uh, the Rand Corporation in the States. Um, I worked there for uh, two and a half years as a, a research assistant. Um, they Rand we probably have heard of. It's uh, one of the biggest. Um, I think it is the biggest uh, nonprofit. Um, think tank in the States, and they have uh, over 1,500 employees. There's a huge spectrum of political views, uh, but their main clients are U.S. government agencies and some uh, private endowments. Um, So I was hired specifically to work on uh, security sector reform in Iraq, um, but the way it works at RAND is once you're in, you kind of network to get on different projects. So Um, I ended up working on on quite a few Middle East-related projects and also a couple of other non-Middle East projects. Um, And again, networking internally is key, and they have offices in Santa Monica, but also in um, D.C., right next to the Pentagon. Um, And also they have a branch here in Cambridge and uh, one in Brussels. So uh, I I love that job, actually. It was uh, was great, but... um, (laughs) In order to progress, um, they they advised um, that a PhD was a good thing to get, and I got funding to come back to the UK. I got funding from the Economic and Social Research Council to uh, do a PhD at at the War Studies Department at King's. Um, My PhD was on civil policing in Jordan, and it really was informed by my experience in Iraq. So I did it in Jordan because of access issues, but um, it was... It was something that some people go straight on from their master's onto onto their PhD, or, or they have a very clear idea of what they want to do intellectually. For me, I really didn't, I wouldn't have done the PhD had had it not been for where I'd been working and, and the projects I'd worked on at RAND. Um, so it led on quite naturally for me. Um, so towards the end of my PhD, I uh, was pregnant, and (laughs) so I finished my PhD and um, I had two children in quick succession. Um, And this is my first job, uh, having come back from um, having my two kids. So my husband's at home looking after my two kids. Um, And um, I'm really happy to be where I'm at now. And so it wasn't an immediate uh, decision to come into academia. Now I feel that I'm quite focused. I know where I want to go next. But for me, it was you know everyone will tell you there there are a lot of ways to get to the same place and I maybe took the scenic route rather than the the fast track but um, I've seen I've enjoyed all of my jobs actually Um, and so if you have any questions just about I'm not going to offer any tips at this stage but if you want to ask about um, just the mixture of uh, working for academic or policy spheres uh, or coming back to work after you've had kids or had parental leave because I don't think we talk about that enough, so um, or anything else that takes your fancy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you, Jess. That's very helpful indeed. Wonderful. Sylvia, coming yeah, on. Sure. Thank you.
2: Hi, everyone. Uh, thank
3: you for inviting me. Uh, just to quickly understand, how many of you are a postgrad? Are you all postgraduate? Okay, most of you. Wonderful. So I guess you also have already some working experience. Uh, as you were mentioning, I think one good thing is to uh, have... A moment between a, a master and a PhD, or sometimes even from undergraduates and uh, you know postgraduate study, to go and like travel in the Middle East, um, and this is not what I did actually. <laughs> I did after, but I thought I, I mean I I really think it would have been very useful. So uh, in my case, I didn't know from the beginning that I wanted to work in the human rights field uh, because one thing that it's very common in the, um, I would say in the Mediterranean, also in the Middle East, is that you need to have a clear job. So your parents ask you like, yeah, but what are you? Like, <laughs> so now my grandma is still confused about what I do. And, and so at a certain point I said, okay, I'm going to do translation. So I can answer the question, you know, I'm a translator. So I went to SOAS um, after I'd studied in Italian and I'd traveled a bit, but not that much, because in Italy, I mean, the system is a bit more flexible, and you don't have to attend the classes, so I decided to go to Syria. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. Sounds like laughs> I decided to go to Syria instead. It was 2010, and, you know, like, learn a bit more of Arabic. And then I went to Morocco anyway. I was, like, traveling a bit, and then I managed to graduate from Italy without attending the last year. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, so I went to SOAS, and I did my my Master in Translation there. And at the same time, I I was working a bit uh, as, you know, student ambassador. One thing that I found very useful during my studies was to do uh, always a bit of work on the side. Not to, you know, you don't have to overwhelm, like, with a lot of stuff, but a bit of admin now and there can be very useful to be able to organize yourself. And, and then I did, uh, I did two internships while I was writing my dissertation. The first one was with a um, publishing house on a publication on uh, the mi- Middle Eastern cinema. So I was mostly translating and helping uh, writing a few articles. And then I went on directly on the internship with a minority rights group. Uh, and I've been working with them for three, three years and a half now. Um, and I was very, I mean, I was very lucky because I, I liked my, my job from the very beginning. So after doing the internship, I got a position as project assistant. And I think one thing that was very useful for me was to show a lot of initiative. So not just do, you know, what you're asked to do, but also to show that you can be, like, kind of indispensable and they need you in, as part of the team and you're adding, you know, like, some value and when i got the project assistant position um then i went to tunisia where i spent uh 3 years and i came back just uh, a few months ago um and while i was there i got the position of project coordinator so um i was i mean i was lucky because i got the the trust of my team to be able to grow uh, quite fast and um, And I mean, um, what I do in my daily job, uh, well, first of all, Minority Rights Group works on defending the rights of ethnic, religious, and linguistic minorities all over the world. But me, in particular, I work with minorities in the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, we do quite a lot of advocacy at the UN level. So one thing that is very important for us is to basically train uh, activists from the region on advo- advocacy skills, UN mechanisms. Um, and basically, uh, after the training, we also help them go to the UN uh, key events. So for example, I don't know if uh, some of you know uh, Nadia Murad. She is a Yazidi activist who is now working with uh, Amal Clooney. Uh, but like a few years ago, we helped her go to, to a forum on minority issues at the UN. So she's one of the, the, the famous examples, but we do this uh, on ongoing basis with uh, with many activists. Um, and then, I mean, we do uh, also some publications on minority situation, you know, in, uh, in different countries of the world, and also, I mean, we, we work a lot with partners on the ground, so the previous project I was working on, we had we were using mostly art to raise awareness about discrimination against minorities. So we worked with uh, also with artists, uh, as long as with you know also with um, with minority activists to do uh, theater uh, on the topic of of discrimination. So I, I mean a lot of different activities depending also on funding. So of course I also help writing proposals for donors. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, my, my main av- advice is also uh, very similar to what Alexandra said before about uh, knowing the language. If you already know that you're particularly interested in, in one country, then, you know, just pick that dialect. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, you have to go through FUSA. There's not much you can do about it. I'm sorry. But like in my case, I spent so much time studying it, and at the end of the day, I speak Tunisian because no one speaks both. So if you know that you are interested in one country, just go for that dialect, to be honest. And um, and also spend time there, like spend time, not just as a student, uh, because you will end up spending time with other students. Uh, which is also nice, of course, but uh, spend time with the people because it really gives you an idea of what is the situation on the ground. There are many things that you can't study, uh, but that you can just discover yourself when while you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and be be proactive. I mean, uh, really uh, be a bit creative. And not, I mean, if this, if this means looking out for a job at 2 a.m. in the morning, that's fine. Or, you know, go and talk to people. Um, I think, in my case, I didn't figure out immediately what I wanted to, to do, and I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about it. It's not uh, – I mean, the beauty of the fact of you know, studying Middle Eastern studies or politics is that it can give you like uh, a set of skills that you can use in different sectors, which I think that's great. Thank you.
0: Super. Thank you very much, Sylvia. And lastly, Austin, please.
4: First, thanks for inviting me to participate in the panel. Um, <laughs> Second, um, an apology in case I lose my train of thought. Um, I've got a four-week-old daughter at home, and we oh. don't get much <laughs> paternity leave in, the, in the private sector. Um, <coughs> so careers in the Middle East and my career in the Middle East. Well, I've been involved in the Middle East in various different ways for nearly 15 years. I started um, actually after I was an undergraduate. I did an intensive course in Arabic um, at SOAS, and started visiting uh, the region and taking mm-hmm. internships. Um, <coughs> I've also been involved in it as, a, as later on as a graduate student in the US. Um, professionally, um, I spent nearly five years in Qatar working for the Al Jazeera Network. I started as an intern um, and managed, it very luckily was there at the start-up um, of, the, of this channel, and there were lots of, kind of opportunities to knock on people's doors and climb the ladder a bit more quickly than is usually possible. Um, so I ended up kind of producing and, and directing uh, current affairs programmes. I also briefly uh, kind of dipped my toe in uh, in the NGO world and worked um, for an aid agency in Iraq. Um, but for the last five years, I've been based here in London, working for a business intelligence company called Alaco, um, and I'm going to talk about business intelligence. Um, if you're like me when you were a student, you didn't have any idea what that was. It's still quite... I think I'm still going to find it quite challenging to explain uh, what it is. Um, it's quite a quite a vague term. You'll also hear corporate investigations, corporate intelligence, risk consulting. Um, I mean, these are all uh, ways of describing the activities of a a few companies. Um, I mean, essentially, it's very in-depth research and analysis uh, for private clients, For, um, in our case, clients that um, are either doing business or exposed in one way or another uh, to the Middle East. Um, (coughs) So... um, it involves, you know, it involves uh, often involves looking in the local language, trying to access uh, not just online material but other, other much more difficult to obtain material, and also, um, you know, networking and, and, and talking to people confidentia- confidentially. Um, it's a, we do this sort of work for a huge variety of clients. I mean, for, for for banks and financial institutions who have to be concerned about things like money laundering risk, and um, these days. Uh, Um, anti-terrorism, what's it called, CTF, counter-terrorism finance. Um, Also, you know, and whether the the clients who they're uh, banking, whether their funds were legitimately earned or not. Um, But we also work for law firms who are representing clients involved in all sorts of disputes. Um, We even work for charities and and foundations who these days have to do due diligence on on donations that they they accept. (coughs) Um, and obviously for, for companies who uh, are either active in the region or planning to be, or considering, um, you know, partnering with someone out there. Um, so in order to do this work, I mean, you have to have uh, uh, quite a detailed, quite, quite a, uh, uh, a good handle on on, on the local <coughs> business scenes, which tend to overlap <coughs> a lot with, with, with politics. Um. <coughs> so who do, who does this? I mean, I think there are two two uh, streams of, of entry lots of graduates come in uh, we particularly look for language skills Arabic but also things like farsi and, and, and Hebrew as well um, and then you know later on people uh, tend to come out of government or the intelligence services or um, or law and uh, kind of work at a more senior level and bring in clients to the business um, business intelligence firms tend to be clustered where their clients are clustered so in big uh, financial centres in London, New York, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, and you know, lastly, why w- why do this? W- why do this work? Well, I find it um, very stimulating. You get to uh, delve in very deeply uh, to issues such as corruption and governance in a way that you probably wouldn't uh, otherwise have the chance to. Um, compared to journalism, you have a huge number of resources at your disposal. Um, uh, if you're it, it suits my personality as well, if, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're cynical and, 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 and don't, don't really believe anything <laughs> you read and are very, very sceptical about, particularly about what you're told in the Middle East and why, why people are telling you it, mm-hmm. um, I think it suits you too. Um, there are opportunities to, to travel and to um, you know, build your own personal network. So I'm happy to take questions either on my own career or uh, business intelligence.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much, Austin. Well, let's move straight on to questions. We have 25 minutes (laughs) left, and there are a lot of people here, so we're keen to give as many of you the chance to ask things as possible, but there will also be time afterwards at the reception outside to approach anyone on the panel. Um, So please put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question. We have a microphone. Please wait for that to come because the event is being recorded. Please be fairly concise because we expect we may have quite a few questions. I think the first one is up at the back at the top. Thank you. If you'd like to introduce yourself as well, that would be helpful. Thank you. Um, my name is Hakon. I'm a postgrad at King's College London, Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, Austin, how do you think Brexit will impact <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the geopolitical risk uh, sector in London? Um,
4: well, obviously... <laughs> That 's something we, uh, we do think of I mean I think um, uh, we already now work for loads of clients in Europe and, 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 and uh, most of our, and um, all over the world, and I think you know London will still continue to be kind of hub for that kind of you know, an, analytical work because of the universities because of the you know, international people here, so sure some of our clients might move some of their operations to To Frankfurt, but I don't think that necessarily will mean the work will dry up for political risk or business intelligence.
0: Thank you. Next question is here. hey uh, i'm mohammed a uh, postgraduate student at the lse um i just want to sort of ask uh, does h- sort of s- uh, starting your career uh, focusing just on the middle east or an any region sort of uh, d- did it do you feel that it hold you in in that sort of uh, you know career trajectory is it for for everyone for everyone, yeah I
3: know. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm Tilda? Gonna, uh, we can um, – it's okay. But, okay. You're, you're <laughs> so, in there. Okay, great. Uh, no, I mean, I didn't feel that. I mean, maybe sometimes uh, in kind of desperate times in which uh, – I don't know – like, uh, I had moments, for example, when I was in Egypt. And I faced some problems uh, i I felt like why <laughs> why did I do this?" But this was like for really a short time. I never felt like he was holding me actually um, there is uh, a lot of opportunities right now uh to work with the with the middle east and um i I actually always felt that he gave me like a sense of you know knowing where I was going um, but at the same time keeping a lot of options open but at least you know that you are let's say an expert in a certain area so you can uh, do different things working on on that area so I never felt he was uh, limiting me in in any way and yeah you can still learn a lot of stuff but still you will get that knowledge which is quite uh, important I mean yeah
1: it's I don't think it's It's limiting me. It is a question I did ask myself, because when you read the news, (laughs) you can't help but get a bit depressed sometimes. And it's true, because sometimes um, the work that we do is depressing, you know, it's really difficult. Um, For example, working with refugees is very difficult, and I think it's really important to be able to talk openly on the sort of impact on, on people working on refugees, because you're working with very distressed people and I think there's a whole way um, you have to deal with it, and I think it makes it very difficult. So you know, some days you can't sleep at night. Some days you have nightmares. I mean, these are all things that exist within our sector, and that's not entirely limited to the Middle East. But it <laughs> is difficult, and I think being able to talk about it openly is the key to it. So you're able to talk with your colleagues, with your friends, with, and it's being able to to also put a bit of distance. You know, be me being from the region, it's very difficult for me sometimes to look at things and not um, think about it very personally. Um, but I think what sort of balances that out is the people that you meet as well, because you meet amazing people on these jobs. And I think that really balances the difficulty mm-hmm. that you might have dealing with certain issues. So. I think for me, it was, it's kind of a part of my identity, so I didn't really ask myself the question. I think I would, I would feel um, a bit cut off working on something else. But then I know that people from the Middle East sometimes uh, willingly choose to work on something else because they don't want to think about things that they find negative mm-hmm. in their c- own countries. So I guess it's, it's a sort of balance that you have to find um, yourself, really. Mm.
4: Can I just add something? I mean of course. From my experience of the, of, of the media and NGOs and uh, the private sector, o- o- it's often your interest in the Middle East that we will get you in, get you know, give you a foothold. But uh, you know, very often, uh, if, if you, once you become a staff member or a, of a media organisation, I mean, if you it's a, it's a, and you you show that you're you're good. I mean, you, you you'll end up being posted, whether you like it or not, somewhere outside the region. I mean, I think the same the same thing is the case. Um, in, the, in in the NGO world, it's it's really about the you know, the skill not, not the place although obviously uh, mm. things like Arabic and knowledge of the region will help you get, get those jobs so I don't think it's something that you need to, t- you don't need to worry that if you're going down this track that you'll, you, know, you will necessarily always uh, only have to work there
0: Thank you, we have a question in the front row here
2: Yes, hi. Thank you. Um, I'm Megan. I just recently finished my postgraduate at SOAS, um, and I had a question <coughs> about the language skills. So you all mentioned the importance of, you know, um, intensive Arabic, maybe picking a dialect. Um, but when you're starting out in your career and you're just, you know, trying to get your, your language skil- skills under under control, I guess, Um, did you find that it was, was, if it was limiting, if you just had a beginner level, or how long did it take you to reach a certain level of Arabic for you to get those jobs that you were looking for, if you could just kind of give a little bit of, of information about the language skills?
1: Yes, I'm a,
4: I'm a native so speaker. We'll so let's <laughs> <then. laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah. the other three let the three of this. I, mean, I think it, it, uh, uh, Arabic is like a lifelong—it's uh, a lifelong <laughs> thing, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah, especially if if you're if you're a Westerner, there's only you know a very small number of people you'll you enc- you're, you're encounter who really master um, both the formal language mm-hmm. and, and and dialects. There um, are. There are there are there are there are there are there are those people, but I don't. There aren't <laughs> that many. Uh, yeah, there are, I think most of the jobs that we're we're talking about don't nec- don't need that that level of proficiency. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think any Arabic is any Arabic is better than nothing. I mean, in what I do, what in what I do, um, actually, it's it's reading skills that are most important um, uh, because we're analysing what's in the media and text and um, you need social media, which can be difficult because you find social media, although you know. You're not supposed to have dialect written down. Actually, you do in, in, in social media. Um, so, f- from my current position, that's what's most important. But I know that lots of you know, in lots of other sectors that, that, that's getting to a certain level of, of, of spoken language would be more the most rewarding thing.
2: Yeah. No, I would say um, having battled <laughs> through an Arabic degree, that um, I mean, it does really depend on what what you're going into. And my first job was translation, and I didn't actually use spoken arabic at all um so obviously reading was the most important um and you can reach a level of reading proficiency much faster than i mean i'd say probably honestly it took me like two years um but then the speaking comes with spending time in the region i just don't see any other way around it like it really is talking to people and that's the i mean that's the rewarding part in a way but it is also the difficult part um, and I couldn't, put a day, I couldn't put a time span on it. Um, but I, yeah, it, for a lot of jobs, just a bit of Arabic helps. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can I just yeah, add something, actually? Um, TV, really important. Yeah. I learned Italian watching TV, so I probably have a Rai accent. <laughs> but it is, it is really important, yeah. because it gets you in a, in a state of mind. It's not only about the language, it's also about understanding the culture. Um, and I think this is this is where getting into I don't know even watching series or films or you really get the vibe of where you are. And I think I mean I speak better Italian when I'm in Italy, weirdly enough. So I think it's about um, also finding things that interest you in that language. And I think sometimes that's the problem with the way Arabic is taught is that you focus on these really complicated uh, texts, and it doesn't make it sound like it's a living language, but it really is. So, yeah,
0: media. <laughs> 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 the Arabic discussion is terrific. We could have the whole event just on the language <laughs> point, yeah. I think. But more questions. There's one up at the back, please. Thank you. And then, yes, put yours on.
1: Hi, my name is Daniela. Hi. I recently graduated from postgrad at uh, KCL. Um, I just wanted advice on finding research roles when you only have an MA, and um, is it really necessary to get a PhD?
0: (laughs) What do you mean by research roles? Uh, Do you have an idea where?
2: Well, for example, I mean, similar to something Jessica does. You? Uh, so i mean d- and do you mean specifically in academia or or research in like policy think tanks? well yeah i mean uh,
1: research for ngos or things like that yeah. as well as uh, academia
2: um no i think that uh I, I still think it is becoming a more and more competitive market that's true but um certainly if you're outside of academia and ngos and um policy think tanks uh yet yeah, i most Kind of junior level, they wouldn't definitely not expect you to have a PhD. Um, I I went to Rand with uh, I had a master's actually, but a a lot of people there in junior research assistant positions didn't have that; they just had BA. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's um, in academia. I think uh, it's a tough market, but again, there are there are opportunities. Yeah. I don't, Bob can probably say something about that. <laughs> Um
0: I worked at Chatham House for nine years for their Middle East programme and few researchers there have PhDs. There are some, but it's definitely not a prerequisite. There are other skills which are more important to getting yourself in to do research and I think like Chatham House or some of the other ones um, around. In, in a university research centre, it, it's much tougher. Um, in, in our centre here at LSE, to conduct research you need a PhD. There are research assistant positions which do involve research but they tend to be short term or hourly paid and quite insecure Um, and they tend to be a stepping stone for someone who's going on to a PhD and then will develop further Um, does anyone else want to come in from their sectors on research side NGOs or business intelligence Uh, imagine it's an asset but not essential
1: (laughs) in in NGOs I think a really key area is sort of M&E so evaluating projects um, and that, um, unless you're doing something very specific, such as, uh, you know, leading f- an operation, con- quantitative, for ex- or quantitative research in an organization or qualitative research in an organization, so advising on methodology, then in that case you'd need a PhD, um, although there are people who have done it without. Um, But if you are in uh, research officer or research manager positions, I think there's a lot of focus also on the sort of more project management side of research, so being able to use resources, um, and then also understanding the research methodology. And that, Mm. not everyone has a PhD, so it's not a prerequisite.
0: Next question, just a couple rows down. Thank you. If you put your hand up so you can be spotted just a little higher. Sorry. Oh, well. We'll take you after. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, don't worry. We'll on you go. On you go.
1: We'll roll it. Um, hi, my name is Yasmin. Um, so I'm a postgraduate here at LSE. Um, I wanted to ask, what's your advice for um, people that haven't had much work experience, not nece- uh, like in the Middle East kind of sector, um, to s- kind of get started, get your get your footed in that sector? What's your advice for that?
3: In, in which sector, in general, you refer? In general,
2: uh, I was thinking mostly of um, like think tanks, that kind of thing. Um, so my question is mostly directed at uh, Jessica. If you have any insight, um, well, I mean, I personally, when I went to Rand, I was I was hired for my Middle East um, expertise. But Rand is actually quite a good example of where there is quite a lot of uh, chance for, for kind of horizontal lateral movement um, because the way it works they have um, so many uh, ongoing projects that you're kind of expected to negotiate your way into um, and that is about people skills it really is and actually it's something that I improved at but I, I could have done a lot better but I am I, um, you know I realized that my kind of long-term job security was tied to branching out um, so you could do it the other way around and go in with what you've got, whatever your area of expertise is. And then, do um, the, you normally find that there's a link to, you know, that the Middle East is such a vast sphere? And if you if you have expertise in other area studies or politics, then you can um, you can bridge the gap. So um, I think some of the bigger think tanks. Um, yeah, definitely, it's about who you meet there and kind of convincing them that your skills are applicable across uh, on, a, on on that part of the world. So, yeah,
0: I think we could add link to something Sylvia said about getting into an organisation. You were started as an intern
2: mm-hmm. and proved
0: yourself, and they got to know you. So you don't have to go in at the role you necessarily want. Obviously, inters- internships yeah. are one route, <laughs> but you could join an organisation to to run events or to do fundraising or to do any number of things, especially in the think tank or policy world and then transfer over after a couple of years when, when they know how good you are and, and see your skills. There are lot of people in think tank world who don't necessarily enter the organization with massive background in their what becomes their field. You can develop it in the organization once they know how brilliant you are and they want to keep you, mm-hmm. you carry on. Uh, we should move on to the gentleman behind you. Yes, please.
4: Hi, so it's uh, another question for Jessica uh, uh, about your uh, work as a translator. Um, could you tell me a bit about what that was like, and also, did you need anything other than just knowledge of Arabic, like a, a qualification or?
2: Um, no, actually, I was hired. Uh, so I worked for um, GCHQ, which is Government Communication Headquarters. So, um, and uh, they were. But I mean, I'm being open about this because they hired, and they still do quite openly. Um, they hire. Uh, they went they had a milk grant they had a they had a stand at the careers fair and they were recruiting uh, graduates um, and they didn't require any kind of translation degree if you work for through an agency as a freelance translation then and if you, yes you almost definitely do because if you don't have a a, a certificate from the chartered uh, institute for translation then you might find some work but it's poorly paid and um, yeah, so the uh, within the civil service no you don 't necessarily, but um, if you want to work as a freelancer yes so
0: the, you, ch- you took a master 's in translation yeah, I Wh- took why? a master
3: in translation um, yeah, it was because I felt that you know if you wanted to work as a translator, you need i mean it depends on the um, which kind of translation you want to do, but uh, generally speaking, yeah, if you work for an agency, they will definitely ask you for at least a certificate, not necessarily a master, but like some courses in in translation. And, um, then in my course in particular, we also worked a lot on, uh, translation technology, which is something that you definitely need if you're working on more, let's say, kind of commercial types of text, which is not what I wanted to do anyway, but, uh, let's say if you want to translate, like, uh, I don't know, literature, for example, maybe, I don't know, you need, like, a specific just course on literary translation, uh, or if you want to just work on legal translation, then you can just do a course on that. But I I would recommend to do, not necessarily a master, but if you're interested, like, look for the type of work that you, you may want to do and just do maybe an intensive course on that.
0: Thank you very much. We have a few minutes left. Anyone else with a question who's not been there. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Uh, my name is Angelina. I'm a post-grad at Bergbeck, and You've spoken quite a lot about the importance of uh, doing internships and traveling. Now, can you give advice to the people who are in employment who do something not necessarily related to the Middle East but who would like to be doing something similar to uh, what you're currently involved
2: in? And that's the question for all of you. Thank you. What,
1: What do you mean?
2: Okay, basically, you to
4: the people who yeah, who <laughs> can't really afford to go travelling and can't afford
2: to do internships because they need to pay bills, um, yes, yeah, so they do have degrees, but they don't have relevant work experience. This is to put it like, in a very sad way. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so you mean evening classes, going to Birkbeck, something like that, or taking, <laughs> taking exactly, yeah, Arabic, Arabic classes. Yeah, classes. yeah it's an tough. <laughs> well, Any advice, thoughts?
1: Uh, I mean, I would say... Um, when I applied for my, um, for my first job at the BBC, my cover letter was very genuine, um, and I said, I know that I'm lacking the years of experience mm. that you require for this job. Um, and I think <laughs> I got an automatic reply and thought, ah, oh, I shouldn't have put this. <laughs> like the <laughs> rejection I've ever received. But then my application was passed on because people actually read the letter and thought, ah, oh, research that you've done is interesting um, you actually um, know I, I knew about Arab media so that was relevant for the p- position I was applying for but I had done it as a researcher doing my masters not necessarily as um, um, a professional and I think in, in that case uh, in, in the case of that job that was more important than having the years of experience mm-hmm. um, so I think it's really about um, finding within your past experience as well as a A volunteer or you know in the the what you studied in things that you wrote things that are relevant to the position because in the end i didn't do a project management degree for example some people have project management qualifications but it is something that once you start as a Mm. at the bottom of the food chain may i say you um, progress but uh, definitely the financial aspect of things is really important especially in a city like london And unfortunately, in the NGO world, it doesn't get better, (laughs) if I may say. Um, You know, my mom visits when she visits me. She always asks me when I'm going to get a flat of my own, (laughs) and I always say, "Well, in the NGO world, I doubt." (laughs) So I think, you know, it's it is. I think it's about making the balance of um, your financial uh, obligations, but also what you want to do.
0: on the basis of that rather downbeat assessment, you probably want to be looking at career in business intelligence. <laughs> 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 um, you know,
4: I would just say that to, to advise you to make the most of, of London because I'm in mean, London. You know, there's it, probably not a not very many better cities outside the Middle East to learn about the Middle East than, than in London. I mean, when I first became interested, when I did an internship at an organisation I don't think exists anymore, but called, called Arab Media Watch. I also work for a Syrian o- organisation, so I mean, you can you, you can network here. You can there. Are, there, are, there are lots of lots of lots of ways of kind of, uh, 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 of gaining relationships here that will kind of t- take you uh, to the region eventually. So that that would be my
0: yeah. Be go my go to events, <laughs> exactly. Network, <laughs> talk to people, just impress them uh, about how much you want to do this. I mean, as Alexandra said, in, in an application, be honest. It's very disarming mm-hmm. for a. A recruiter to read a very honest cover letter like yours. It's very refreshing as well. But if you can convince them of the sincerity of your interest or you keep coming back, you're persistent, often it can pay off. So, so yeah, don't give up. Any other couple more we've got time for? There's one at the, this side here. If anyone else would like to, to ask a question, please show your hand now or we'll close it down. And then one there. Thank you. Do you want to...
1: Yeah, you go. Um, hi, my name's Olivia. Um, I was just wondering um, if someone does have the time and does want to take a break after finishing a post-grad before starting a career and wants to get to know the region. I know you said that you just went to, I believe it was Tunisia. I was just wondering if you know of any other like good organizations to maybe go with, if you don't really know the region that well or some sort of opportunities that would be a good chance to immerse yourself, not just hang out with, I don't know, other expats or things like that before starting a career.
3: Um,
1: uh, Yeah, I mean,
3: of course, there's plenty of organizations you, I mean, in first time I traveled, I went to Syria, I went for an Arabic intensive course, uh, so it was easier because it's organized and, you know, you know where you're going, this kind of thing. So I think for the first experience, it might be useful to do something like that. But otherwise, I mean, if you n- have, you know, friends or friends of friends, you can always find someone who will help you find a flat, things like that. But otherwise, it's really, uh, there are so many uh, even smaller organizations that might need help on the ground. So, if you're interested, also in working, for example, in uh, like uh, civil society and NGOs, maybe we can discuss a bit later, and I can also pass you some contacts. Because now I can't make a list of all the organisations, but definitely there's many who will be happy to do so.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. That you know, going to learn Arabic or or, or volunteering is the way to go. I mean, sadly these days some of the opportunities that we had to travel aren't there anymore. I mean, the first place I went was Syria, and then. I went to spent a lot of time in Yemen, when you could just get on a plane without a, without a visa. So, and you don't meet that many expats there.
2: No. Um,
4: so, but there are—I st- mean, there are still places that are rel- relatively kind of accessible um, and interesting to go: uh, Palestinian territories, Jordan. Um, but yeah, I think volunteering or learning Arabic.
0: Thank you. There's a question just in front here. Yes, thank you.
4: Uh, hi, I'm Ewan. Um, this is for Austin. Obviously, your your career is kind of at the intersection of business and politics. And I was just wondering, h- how important is it to have a knowledge of markets and you know economics and business itself, other than just this kind of political expertise? No, that's a good question. I didn't when I when I started doing this kind of work. To be honest, I didn't have very much. I, I didn't have very much knowledge of of, of business and economics. I mean, what we we do, we look at all the kind of risks that are not and all the information that's not financial information. I mean, there, is, there are specialists that, you know, auditors and investigators who, 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 who hoover up numbers. We don't, we don't look at that sort of thing. But we do look at businesses and you do, you know, you do have to develop and learn the vocabulary and, and understand about corporate structures and, 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 and things like that. But you, you tend to be able to do that on the job. So I don't think it's something that you, you need to, uh, you know, unduly worry about before going in that direction.
0: Thanks, Austin.
5: And finally, in the front here, just pass the mic down. Thanks, yeah. Good evening. Um, hi, guys. I, I feel I'm a, a slight gate crasher here in the sense that um, I'm not looking for a job. I, I'm here to assess people to see interest in jobs that we have. If I just introduce do you. Mind? No, please. Oh, <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, my name's Joseph Hayek. I work for Kantar Public Consulting, which is part of the WPP Group. Um, we are in the pro- it's quite a new brand of WPP, and we are um, in the process of setting up Kantar Public Middle East and Kantar Public Consulting Middle East. Um, I am a fellow of Brismas, uh, um, well, well which well is uh, when I told my boss about this event and said I think maybe one of us should go down here. Um, he said, Yeah, great, get down. So um, well you thank you, um, but Basically, what I just want to say uh, these very wise people. I am here. Should you be interested, we are looking for people. Um, you are (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) 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 Um, um, I'll be honest with you that we are at the very beginning of this stage Um, uh, Mike, I've yet to move out, I will be setting up in Dubai, I'm not there yet Um, but we are, this is things that are happening and we're very keen to get moving so if you do want to talk to me afterwards and
0: Lovely, thank you. There you are. Direct pitch. We didn't expect that on the night. <laughs> I think I should also say that there are a couple of colleagues here from ATKIS, um, which is a Design, Engineering and Project Management Consultancy. We have Dean and Andrea who are here. I think they're happy to be approached as well afterwards at the reception if you're interested in the work ATKIS do. They have a lot of offices in the region. Do you want Could to say
2: I a quick word? Thank you.
0: There you are, you have two targets at the drinks reception. Do please stay on for a drink, Uh, it's just outside. Thank you so much to our speakers, Austin, Sylvia, Jessica, Alexander. we're very grateful. Thank you for coming.